as much about cowboys as I do about pirates. I know a lot about pirates. Fair enough. I know a lot more about cowboys than I did like three days ago. Boned up on your cowboy knowledge? That I did. I poked around a little bit. Hey, spurred spurred some uh, thought. Uh-huh. Glad I can rope you two into some <laughs> decent conversation. <laughs> a little horsing around. Just chomping at the bit here to get going. Welcome back to Blowout, the only bloviating fashion history podcast that I am currently aware of. My name is David, and I am the managing editor of a site called Heddles. My name is Reed. I'm a writer at Heddles. And we're talking denim. Denim history specifically as we sidle up to part six, partner. Little recap of uh, where we are. The year is roughly 1900. Denim work pants, waist overalls, coveralls, union alls as perfected by Jacob Davis and distributed by Levi Strauss, uh, who provided pants for miners in San Francisco gold rush in the 1850s, 60s, and 70s, have found their way all over these United States. And now dozens of different industries in all regions of the country have discovered the utility in hard-wearing blue denim. Whether that's mining, driving a freight engine, or working in a foundry, Uh, Different brands have popped up to service each separate region and locale due to lack of infrastructure for any one brand to sell everywhere. Oh, these were still squarely work pants, with about the same amount of cultural influence as a ball-peen hammer, but all that is about to change as we get into Cowboys! You ready to talk Cowboys? Ready to talk Cowboys. Well, too bad, because we've got to talk about some context for Cowboys first. As we talked about in the last episode and the Transcontinental Railroad and how that connected physically the uh, country of the United States and allowed physical products like jeans uh, to pass back and forth, it was also being connected by other new technologies that allowed the spread of ideas. Previously, print was the only way to distribute information, like, and it was kind of a straight shot since Gutenberg in the 1400s that you had to have a book or a letter or something else like that written down in order to get the idea somewhere. It could only move as fast as a person could. He had a run. It's like 400 years. Yeah. You know, there, there are very few people that were able to uh, go so far for so long. But we had a new invention, which allowed you to transfer ideas and messages like pretty much instantaneously as long as you were able to lay down cable. By the 1850s, that like... Morse code cable was laid down throughout much of the United States and even transatlantically so you could send messages uh, across the ocean without having to send a boat back and forth. Did those cables sit on top of the ocean? No, they were submarine cables. So apparently they just like hung out down below somewhere. Just clotheslining aquatic species? Pretty much. That has to be like a wild, not that we're a physics podcast, but that I'd listen to a 99% invisible on that. Yeah, and how they laid the first cables across the, yeah, the Atlantic Ocean for hung with buoys, uh, like a thousand miles. Yeah, hung with buoys for a thousand miles. Yeah, so a little like dot 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 could go across and you know tell someone <laughs> what you had for breakfast that morning. I think that's a that's a worthy cause, right? Yeah. So along with Morse code and the telegraph, there are other new forms of, I guess, idea distribution. 
like radio, which was invented in 1896, and but didn't really go wide until the 1920s in the U.S. Um, but more relevantly to our experience here was motion pictures, um, which, as we know them, were invented in 1892 by Thomas Edison. Uh, Thomas Edison, excuse me. Um, which is a side note, the precursor for movies was made by a guy trying to settle a bet on how many feet of a horse touched the ground while it was running. Did he win the bet? Uh, the guy did win the bet, but he wasn't the, the one who did all the camera work wasn't the one uh, that was part of the bet. He was hired by the guy who made the bet. I was gonna say that'd be so much work to lose a bet. Yeah. Can Can you imagine just like inventing a technology just to prove someone wrong and be like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, this was in like 1877. And the guy set up like all these trip cameras set up in sequence of like 44 different cameras to like follow a horse running along. And then he could put all of the different images together and say like, ah, see, there's only one foot on the ground at a time. Pay me why one dollar. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose it's better than like the alternative of, of the previous era, which was just shooting each other in the street. Like, Oh, they were still doing that. (laughs) Do you think like, like if like, if the guy hadn't come through with the move, like the motion picture device, do you think they would have been like, all right, man, I guess we gotta, we gotta duel it out. Mm, Maybe like uh, horses at dawn. Horses at dawn. Uh, at, uh, Edison, the guy that actually you know made money, except after just getting paid to settle that bet, um, started making actual like movies from them, and was the first um, one of the first people to like discover it as a uh, medium of fiction and a medium that could actually be used to tell stories. And one of the first movies was The Great Train Robbery in 1904, which was a western that featured train robbers in typical Western cowboy getup, including denim jeans, in 1904, even though it was filmed in New Jersey. So it is uh, a interesting cultural artifact there for how um, these dudes in New Jersey that were making movies for the first time um, wanted to make a Western with cowboys wearing denim um, in the early 1900s and distribute this uh, kind of a story all throughout the United States, that that was a profitable thing to do back then. Did they get the costuming right? No, no, no. The, the, very wrong, which is a thing that we're going to get into here about how the image of the cowboy and our idea of the cowboy is entirely falsified in fantasy. Oh, just, just humor me for a second. Like, wh- what do you imagine when you think of the stereotypical cowboy? Are we talking garb or personality? Uh, Both. Like, who are they and then what are they wearing? Uh, they are wearing, they're wearing jeans, cowboy boots, big old hat, uh, probably flannel, but maybe denim shirt, um, mm-hmm. buckle, spurs. Cowboys are big accessory people from what I know about them. Very much. Like, very much accessory guys, like bandanas, uh, gun holsters, suspenders i don't know they they actually now i'm thinking about it they're like the f- true first like accessory accessory menswear heads it seems like um maximalists through and through through and through like you know they did not follow that coco chanel look in the mirror take one thing off 
They're like, no, I will put four things on, good sir, because I'm a cowboy. Um, I imagine they wouldn't have said things like, good sir. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, uh, in my head, chew like wheat straws or whatever those things are called. The things that people at Union made used to chew in like 2011. Um, they're like, see, this is where it gets rough because like now I want to be like thinking Deadwood where they all just were like total outlaws and all that stuff. But it's like, now, nah, like probably some were just like, I'm making money being a cowboy. Um, but yeah, I imagine they're not like, uh, the, the softest edges, some rough edges on mm-hmm. these guys. A lot of time alone too. Yeah. Uh, self-reliant, independent, um, keeping themselves afloat on their own two feet. Yeah. Uh, pose for Marlboro ads. Mm-hmm. Did I, did I get it right? Am I, am I doing better than Edison did? Well, yes and no. Cause like that is that very much quintessentially the uh, like American conception of a cowboy that we have in our heads today, but could not be further from the truth really than what the actual historical cowboys were at the time. Um, so like if you want to talk about who the people that were considered cowboys, I guess, historically, that it's something that tr- uh, descended from the vaquero tradition of Spanish and Mexican ranchers and cattle wranglers. And they were there like really from the 1500s onwards when um, Spain and conquistadors settled and like set up missions in uh, modern day Texas, Mexico, New Mexico, California, Arizona. Settled is such a nice term. Yeah, just a uh, very, very loaded term of like uh, enslaved and uh, conquered and um, murdered and diseased infested. Are you sitting here? Is this table taken? What? (laughs) But uh, regardless, they were doing cowboy work where they would round up like wild horses and cattle in the open plains of northern Mexico and modern day Texas. And this sort of continued through the like mid 19th century. Um, I guess when uh, the Texan War of uh, quote-unquote independence and the Mexican-American War uh, happened, that uh, is like all this was being done mostly with Spanish breeds of cattle and horses. Like cows and horses weren't native to North America, and they had to be brought over like on a boat from Spain. And you know things like the Texas Longhorn and like the Mustang; those are all. Spanish breeds that have just sort of become um, their own thing here in the States after hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, Wait, really? Yeah, yeah. They, they didn't have any uh, they didn't have any cattle here. They didn't have any horses here before then. So no one that predated Europeans coming here was riding, were riding animals? Uh, at least not horses and cows. No. I, mean, I don't really think there's been a shelf you can ride. I mean, I don't. You're not really riding a cow, yeah. but you got uh, alpacas and like llamas down in South America and like the the Incan tradition. Were there um, like the emperor's new llama, uh, new groove got that right? Were there like llama cavalries? I would love to see that. I I would hope that you know that there are these like uh, small of stature um, indigenous tribes that used to ride around on llamas that would just be, that would make my day to know that that's happened, but I have not encountered anything to prove that that was a thing. So it's just going to stay as headcanon here. I appreciate that. It's good headcanon though. Yeah. 
the the term cowboy didn't develop to describe this kind of work until 1849. Um, and the cowboy era, as we'd like to think of it, was only for about 20 years. Um, and it was about like from the end of the Civil War until the mid 1880s. Um, and this is because like all those cows um, left over, um, or I guess just I don't want to use the, the S word, the settled word, but um, left in that part of North America in like northern Mexico and Texas um, were mostly there. But all the railroad lines were further north going from, you know, a straight line from uh, San Francisco to Chicago and then to New York. Um, and there was a much higher demand for beef in the, like after the Civil War. And. Uh, this led to the need for cattle drives to get the cows from Texas all the way up to the rail line so they could go to the meatpacking district in New York City and get slaughtered and people could eat steaks there. Um, and that had these cattle drives where you would have like a dozen or so guys on horseback that would herd thousands and thousands of cattle north over the course of several months, like along the open prairie. Um, and this is the sort of stereotypical stuff that you'd think of like a chuck wagon and a horse wrangler and like um people looking out for water moccasins as they were fording the rivers um uh, like have you ever seen lonesome dove the or read the book it, it's like that kind of stuff was, was what was actually happening both in response to that I, lonesome dove was uh i like lonesome dove lonesome dove's good you know i think that we should bring back the term having a poke um having a poke is a good term it's yeah, Lonesome Dove is like one of those things where it's like, yeah, I like Lonesome Dove. Mm. I like the book better, I think. Is that wrong? It's not wrong. I mean, it's like I think it's one of Robert movie. Duvall's best roles, but... Uh, it's like book. five parts, right? The movie? The, the, the miniseries? The miniseries, whatever it is. It's, yeah. like, it's long. It's very long. The book is long, but it's like, it's not like... Eh, they're both pretty long. I was about Blow to say... Like, seal of approval. Lonesome Dove. I was about to talk about like that Ken Follett book, but I was like, that one's long. <laughs> so like of these cattle drives, the most famous was probably the Chisholm trail, which went from Texas to Abilene, Kansas, where cattle would board train cars to Chicago and other points eastward to get slaughtered. Um, and this was something that was done um, and not really romanticized uh, until the end of the 1880s when uh, the invention of barbed wire and further expansion of the railroad made it not necessary to have these big cattle drives anymore as the distances were shorter to get to the rail lines and they didn't need a dozen guys to go around and herd them along the way. Cause they could just put up these barbed wire fences and just like shuttle the cows into the, uh, the train cars. Um, these cowboys, they almost certainly did not wear jeans. They, uh, like so this cowboy period is from like 1865 until about 1885. Um, and uh, jeans did not get invented until 1873. So there was only really an overlapping of about 10 years. And this was in the completely wrong region because it was in you know Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas. And all of this denim innovation was happening pretty isolated in uh, the San Francisco, like Nevada, um, Northern California area. So cowboys did not wear jeans. This is a thing that I think can be stated pretty definitively. Like maybe one or two of them were able to get a hair, like their hands on a pair of jeans, but this was not a thing in the cowboys as we 
typically know them. What would they have been wearing instead? Just like normal work pants? Yeah. I mean like the stuff in, uh, you've seen Deadwood, right? Of like yeah. normal pants and like jackets and chaps and like, uh, long underwear and boots and, and spurs. Those were a real thing. And they had saddles and stuff like in horse blankets, but they were not wearing jeans. Like denim jeans were not a thing in any of these cattle driving folks. Uh, now that I think folks. about it, I don't, yeah, it would, Deadwood does make more sense. Like I don't like denim is like far more in the image than it seems to be like in any actual recreation of the time. Hmm. Yeah, they were just wearing like brown things, no blue jeans. <laughs> a lot of shit that looked like it was dyed by mud, not because it was dyed on purpose, but just because it was just like muddy. It was just very dirty. Uh, even though the cowboy as a profession died in the 1880s, the image of the cowboy persisted, um, which is something that you know saw it through to being in the Great Train Robbery in 1904, like all the way out in New Jersey. Um, and... There's a lot of things about the cowboy that I guess do a lot of cultural work for the United States and it becomes a good like blank canvas for which we could present the values that Americans like to see ourselves having. Um, which like, as you said before, was like independent and self-reliant, tough, violent, hardworking, like, and in a sense, like somewhat humble. Um, and there's this great book that I found about the cultural image of the cowboy called the cowboy hero by uh, someone whose name of all names is William Savage. A uh, couple key quotes that I found here about uh, the West and the image of the cowboy, which is, uh, the West is a place for fantasies because it is remote in time and space. If its histories is brief and bizarre, its landscape is vast and bizarre, often isolating the individual through extremes of geography and climate and forcing him to depend solely upon his own physical and psychological resources. Um, which is a thing, like, as we discussed before in terms of San Francisco, like, out there in the middle of nowhere, like, took, like, six weeks to six months to get to by boat. Um, it's a thing where it's so far away in the public consciousness that you could imagine a lot of fantastical things happening there because no one would really have the a firsthand experience or be close by enough to prove you wrong. Um, and, uh, was there a lot of like magical realism thinking back then? Yeah, I think so. You know, it wasn't to the point of like Iceland and trolls and like elves and fairies and type stuff, <laughs> but a lot of like larger than life, um, stories of, of people and their capabilities and, uh, mythological. Like Savage continues here of, the cowboy, like much else that is Western, stands squarely in the middle of all this. His history arises from a region remote in time and space, and thus it is distorted to the advantage of his image. Americans have fantasized about the cowboy for a hundred years because in the general context of the West, as a physical and psychological experience, there has not been much else worth doing with him. His quote-unquote real history, as we have seen, has not yet been written, which is a circumstance attributable to the ascendancy of his image, reluctance to tamper with his image and refusal to accept revisions of his image. Um, so it's just like, he's sort of immune in the way that Savage is discussing like what the cowboy is. 
um, because it's so far removed from anyone's real experience. And it's it sort of reminds me of um, Natty Bumpo or like Hawkeye, if you've ever seen Last of the Mohicans, the Daniel Day-Lewis character in that. Um, okay. Was like the American equivalent of the cowboy in the 1830s and like the romantic era. If um, this is part of James Fenimore Cooper's Leatherstocking trilogy that you have this noble savage, um, his term, not mine, of a, you know, a Native American that knows how to live authentically and live really and is in touch with the land because they aren't in all of these, uh, you know, pretentious, uh, I don't know, drudgery of modern day society and that they can, you know, they don't have to work in a factory. They don't have to uh, answer to a boss. They're, they're out there on their own in the prairie and they're the master of their own destiny. And that romantic idea is very popular for uh, Americans like coming out of the industrial revolution that had to slave away in a factory for, you know, 16 to 18 hours a day and their kids lost all their fingers. It's like either die of exposure or die of, of just soot inhalation. I'd probably rather die of exposure to be honest. I would, I mean, I'm not, I'm not like any type of camper really, or like outdoorsman, but, uh, exposure still seems better. Yeah. Way more romantic way to die. Yeah, you know, someone can find your journal. It's like, mm-hmm. ooh, this was cool. You could lie in it. No one could check you. Like, if you knew <laughs> you were going out, you had three days. Just, like, write as much as you can. Talk about, like, the Bigfoots that you congregated with. And just send yeah. people searching for 100 years. It would have been fun. Uh, the bears. Not the dying, you- the lying. <laughs> Another classic American tradition. Dying or lying? Both. Yeah, you know. We're creative with both. Yeah, we're doing a great job of both of them right now. Right now. Um, but uh, this American cowboy image is just super useful for us in constructing a, a uniform American identity, which, as we will get back to in just a minute, is uh, where it got tied into genes and these two identities sort of uh, coalesced and what gave uh, genes their cultural significance that they had not had up to this point. I'll be back in just a minute. Attention, blowout listeners. Stop by the Heddle Shop for a wide assortment of sweaters, knits, and Teamster tees available in the newest colors and styles. Our denim tops and jeans for men's and boys are made in USA and are available in a rainbow of colors at a low Heddle's price. Visit shop.heddles.com and use the code BLOWOUT for a special listener discount. Just getting back into it, the a lot of this mythologizing was can be placed on one dude, uh, good old Buffalo Bill. Puts the lotion on the skin. Yeah, not, not, not that big Buffalo Bill, but uh, <laughs> the Buffalo Bill Wild West shows, a.k.a. William Cody, um, who... In his own right, like he was sort of the authentic image of what we would imagine a Western hero to be. Um, is like in William Cody's life, he was born in the 1840s, and he rode for the Pony Express delivering mail at age 15. Was the Pony Express like the period equivalent of being like a in the like a Navy SEAL or being like a a f- fighter pilot, like a Blue Angel pilot, just like? an ultimate party trump card, just the coolest person at the party. 
Yeah, it wasn't like, I guess, very desirable thing to do, but it was very, uh, something that we think is very cool now of, you know, you're, you're delivering the mail, you're, uh, you're helping people stay connected in this very disparate and, uh, unoccupied country. Well, I guess it was, it was occupied and it's another very loaded term. Um, <laughs> just not by us. Uh, oh yeah. Writing for the Pony Express is something that was, uh, I don't know. I don't know enough about it to say if it was something that was uh, well regarded or seen as heroic. But looking back on it now, it is something that we have very romantic ideas about what the Pony Express was. It seems very cool sitting on my couch in Brooklyn, New York in 2020. Uh-huh. And riding across these Rocky Mountains to deliver uh, medicine and news. Yeah, like I'm basically just picturing a Treyu in Never-Ending Story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, before, before. trying to pull your horse out of the bog. Yeah, just sinking. Oh, Buffalo Bill uh, fought for the Union in the Civil War, and then was a frontiersman setting up a uh, his own like little town in uh, Kansas. And then he was a civilian army scout during the Indian Wars and the Plains Wars. And for that, he earned the Medal of Honor, um, which was later revoked in 1917 when government revoked all civilian medals. But Still uh, earned it while he was alive. <laughs> and for all this stuff, you know, like the uh, people that wrote, you know, dime novels and paperbacks at the time, like picked out these people like Kit Carson, um, Wild Bill Hickok, who was an associate of uh, uh, Buffalo Bills and also a character on Deadwood. Um, and they really elevated his image, uh, which he capitalized on by making a... Uh, his own show that he would travel around and uh, show off and people would pay to come out and see the famous Buffalo Bill. Uh, And this started in the 1870s and it soon developed into this big like three ring circus kind of thing um, where it was a really big deal if the Buffalo Bill Wild West show came to your town. Um, That it was something that had you know, 50 to 100 people at different points as it it ran from the 1880s through his death in 1917 um, and had, uh, you know, Mexican vaqueros that had sharpshooters like Annie Oakley and uh, got a review here from the Indianapolis Journal in May 27th, 1884 of what it was like when uh, Buffalo Bill's Wild West show came to Indianapolis. Oh, the amusement review. Buffalo Bill's Wild West Show. Buffalo Bill and his aggregation of wild western novelties, Indians, cowboys, squaw men, buffaloes, elk, mountain goats, etc., gave a performance at the state fairgrounds yesterday afternoon before about 2,000 people who were delighted with the entertainment. The company has been very greatly augmented since its visit to Indianapolis last season. Many new features have been introduced and the best of the old ones retained. The company embraces, besides its famous proprietor, Major Frank North, the white chief of the Pawnee Indians, John Nelson, white chief of the Sioux, each being accompanied by a band of Indians and their respective tribes, about 50 in all, buck squaws and papooses. Buck Taylor, king of the cowboys, Captain A.H. Bogardus, champion wingshot of the world, and his four sons, Seth Hathaway, the Pony Express driver, Fred Matthews, the driver of the famous Deadwood coach, a party of Mexican greasers, and many others. These men are all of them well known to all who are acquainted with the recent history of the Wild West, 
and are the, quote, genuine article, their appearance and performances giving a correct and accurate impression of the life, manners, and sports of the frontiersmen. Just real quick, the white chief, was there a regular chief? Probably. I didn't like, I don't know enough to comment on this specifically, but I'm guessing it's something that like through a lot of these uh, quote unquote treaties that the federal government engaged with a lot of these uh, native nations um, that they just installed some white guy to say like, oh, you speak for all of these people and we're just going to be signing a deal with ourselves. So I don't really know what the deal is with these white chiefs. Uh, I should look that up. Yeah, I don't want to judge book by its cover, but Frank North and John Nelson just don't strike me as indigenous names. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't sound like a classic Sioux or... Uh... Like I said, I don't mm-hmm. want to judge a book by its cover. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, the, continuing on here, the, the entertainment is unique and interesting, is not at all coarse or vulgar, and is well worthy of visit. The matchless shooting of Buffalo Bill Bogardus and his sons, uh, the thrilling attack on the Deadwood coach, the riding of the bucking Mustangs, throwing the lasso, Indian dances, races, and the finale of the attack on a frontiersman cabin by marauding savages are interesting and exciting. And for those who like that sort of thing, that is the sort of thing they like. The show is under the management of Mr. Nat Salisbury of Troubadour Notoriety, who to whom is due the credit for the systematic method of introducing the attractions and the conduct of the performances, the show being given without a halt or a hitch. The entire company, cowboy, Indians, and all are encamped in regulation tents and wigwams, and the camp as well as the entertainment is in accordance with the nature of the show. In the street parade today, Buffalo Bill will be accompanied by his daughter, Miss Artie Cody. Um, they really fooled this guy. Um... There's a thing where like he's going on here about uh, how authentic it is, but like what uh, in recent scholarship, I guess shows that just like, this is all pageantry and like, you know, a circus act of what um, Buffalo Bill did. It was a really, really good show by all accounts, but it was just sort of building up this idea and doing like reenactments of specific historical events of like, you know, the Deadwood coach being attacked by, uh, on its way into town and like they're reenacting that in front of a group of people, sort of like, I don't know when you'd see things in like the gladiator arena in ancient Rome where they'd reenact famous battles. Yeah. I was thinking Maximus Decimus Meridius. Yeah. You know, husband to a murdered wife, father to a murdered (laughs) son. Yeah. Frank Nelson, chief of the white chief of the Sioux. Yeah. Born to an accountant. (laughs) So like they'd be doing like little Bighorn, like I'm trying to like think, like what would they be doing, like battle wise, like like would they be doing like those types of things or like Not like Custer's like Custer's Last Stand or like I think they they eventually did some things like that, but here in this one it describes them like just like quote, a coach. savages, you know, being atta- uh, attacking a white frontiersman's cabin or a stagecoach being attacked on its way into uh, Deadwood, uh, okay. and that. Uh, it sort of directly translates into what Western movies become. It's just like the same uh, reenactments, but filmed, but we'll get into that in a minute. Um, but we're like guys like doc holiday and like, like the tombstone stuff. Was that, was that common knowledge or was that something we discovered later on? And we're like, Oh, someone actually did do this stuff. Uh, I forget when was the okay corral. I feel like it was late 1800s, right? 
Yeah. Uh, uh, eighteen eighty one was when the Tombstone Arizona OK Corral. So you know this report that I read from it was in eighteen eighty four. So yeah, things like that would have been known, but um, yeah, like so these. Wild West shows, they traveled all around the world, but were most popular in the Eastern United States to give people a sense of, you know, the daring adventure that was happening out on the frontier. Five goes West. Very much. The appeal of the West didn't die with Buffalo Bill, though, when he died in 1918. So the, the reenactments they did in the Wild West shows lived on in Western movies like uh, the Great Train Robbery, which uh, Westerns were one of the most popular genres of all silent movies as that started to become a thing in the early 1900s. And there were dozens and dozens of these made every year from the Great Train Robbery onwards. And people wore jeans in the Western movies. Um, jeans were unfamiliar and of the West. So it was a thing that I don't really know why they started popping up there, but Western stars like Tom Mix, William S. Hart uh, of the Oter, uh, coinage and Gilbert Bronco Billy Anderson wore jeans in their pictures. Uh, just great name, Gilbert Bronco Billy Anderson. Um, uh, the jeans that they wore were likely stronghold ones because most of these movies were made in Los Angeles and we were still in the era of regional denim manufacturing, um, as we talked about a couple episodes ago. And all of this sort of culminated in John Wayne. Uh, wearing Levi's in his breakout role of stagecoach in 1939. Which then he just wore like regular, like purchase that year Levi's that you can um, even see the red tab on them, which was introduced in 1936. And uh, totally historically inaccurate, but you know, that that's not really important for what the cowboy is supposed to be doing in a lot of these situations. Um, the director of that movie, John Ford, on Wayne said, he'll be the biggest star ever because he is the perfect everyman. And jeans at this point are becoming the pants of the everyman. For thousands of years, man has cultivated the fruit of the Sapindus mucorasi tree to wash their clothes. The emperors of China knew about them. The kings of India knew about them. Now, you know about them. Heddle's Denim Wash is a hypoallergenic and non-toxic laundry detergent made from these ancient plants. Heddle's Denim Wash. Protect your fades like the royalty they are. Jeans are on screen at this point, but they aren't necessarily on people's legs outside of people that are working in serious industries that required them. And the thing that actually put pants on legs and made them like cool and uh, desirable are these things called dude ranches that started popping up alongside the mythology and the uh, romanticization of the western half of the United States. You ever been to a dude ranch? Ever ever seen one? Ever uh, gone out and like ridden a horse and like fed it apples and you know had to go on a hayride? I'll be honest. I don't think I knew that a dude ranch was like a thing. Like I. I think I thought it was just like something someone chose to call a, a ranch. Like if that makes sense. I was just like, yeah, yeah. They decided to throw a dude in front of it. Good for them. (laughs) It's a dude's ranch. (laughs) Yeah. Like I don't think I ever, just some dude's ranch. I don't think I put too much thought. I didn't realize, like I definitely didn't know it was like an amusement park ride, you know, like, Mm -hmm. or whatever. Like I thought, uh, yeah, I think in my head, I don't think I've been to a dude ranch. 
there I'm not either. There was this but place you- in Park City where they had like goats and horses and stuff. Uh, but I don't I don't know if that qualifies as a dude ranch. <laughs> uh, I've never been to one either, but I guess that's just from like growing up in Colorado. There's not really a need to go to one. It's a thing that like was the fantasy was very strong and people back east that wanted to escape west to the simple life um even though that was a complete fabrication so it was sort of like space camp but with horses uh, and the ranch doesn't really produce anything but you know tourist attraction so like the easterners would come out and they would ride horses and shoot guns and watch rodeos and have hoedowns and all the stereotypical cowboy stuff that they saw in the movies and read in books um even though it was not historically accurate at all, you know, it's not like anyone really cared. Um, I've got a source from the uh, Dayton Forum, like advertising about what it's like to be at a dude ranch from 1937 here. Um, and specifically the uh, romantic uh, possibilities of going away to a dude ranch. It's called The Cowboy Gets Roped In as an Aid to Cupid. Are you male, tall, and firm-chinned? Are your eyes dark, your skin tanned, your hands strong but gentle and likewise your voice? In short, are you handsome? If so, there may be a chance for you and Cupid and the bank cashier to form a partnership out west this season. If you were slightly bow-legged, that will help make you convincing. It wouldn't be held against you if you could even ride a horse. No kidding, the dude ranch owners of the West met in a convention at Denver recently and seriously adopted a 1937 program of moonlight and crooning. Cowboys are being hired not because they can brand a bellowing steer, remove screw worms from a heifer, or build a barbed wire fence, but solely because they are good looking. I can't tell if this is entirely written like sarcastically, you know, like no kidding. They seriously mm-hmm. adopted a program of moonlighting and crooning. Or if it's yeah. like, or, or if this is earnest, I think it's earnest. Yeah, I, I think it is too. It's, it says your Gary Cooper could land a job if he wanted it. He's the type or Jack Holt or John Bowles. The dude ranch owners know what they are looking, uh, know what they are doing now. For a long time, they fancied that Eastern folk wanted the quote unquote real West with its real rough and often uncouth business of cow punching. Not so. The paying dudes want romance. The unasked question of school teachers, debutantes, junior leaguers, even heiresses is, what chance for romance? Said Lee Herman of Colorado Springs, Colorado, secretary of the Dude Rants Association, which met in Denver. He was summing up the last decade's experiences before the assembled ranch owners and managers. Uh, it's just, uh, I guess it gets even more ridiculous here. Potential women customers must be told offhand like that your ranch is full of handsome cowboys just pining for girls, and you can see that it is true by hiring men for their love-making ability. The men who actually do the dirty work on the ranch need not be publicized and should be kept in the background. Is this like is this the is this like a bra like I'm trying to figure out what this is for. It's a dude ranch. No, but like <laughs> <laughs> It's just like, they're like, women, make sure you come horny. Guys, becoming handsome. Is cow puncher, is that like a derogatory term of the time? 
The cowpuncher is just another term for like cowboy. Okay. Uh, it's a bit the, of a feistier term. Do you think the previous like wanted employment ad was like, we need people that, that cow punch. Cowpunchers mm-hmm. only. Uh, no longer seeking cowboys, seeking handsome men with soft hands. <laughs> Strong uh, jaws. Yeah. Uh, I, I bring up this article just as it, it was the most explicit one I could find that uh, exemplified how much of a fantasy that these dude ranches are and how much that cowboy image was being sold to the people that visited them, that they didn't really give a shit if it was authentic or not. They just wanted uh, something that was fun and escapist. Um, and they wanted to buy into this fantasy as much as they possibly could. Like you said, like Westworld, it basically was Westworld um, as much as they could do it at the time. And when they showed up, though, this was the important part that's relevant to us finally is that they would buy and wear jeans as it was common for people to buy all of their clothes on site because they didn't want to, you know, they show up with what they were wearing, like a, a suit or a, a dress or whatever from the East Coast. They didn't want to be seen as a city slicker. Uh, city slickers to Curly's Revenge or Curly's Gold, excuse me. <laughs> so they get their Western shirt, boots, hat, cowboy pants, uh, AKA jeans at the ranch. And then... There's the important part. They would take them back east as a status symbol of having gone to the dude ranch. They're like the original Mickey years. Yeah. So it was like conspicuous consumption back then of like having a pair of jeans as uh, back east was a status symbol of saying like I had the free time and the means to go out and relax on a dude ranch and I am a tough, you know, uh, uh, cow puncher. That should be demand like uh, that should have your masculine respect because I wear these jeans. Saying a lot by not saying a lot, you know. It's like the original. Yeah. You know, the uh, it's fashion, baby. Yeah, it's it's a high key flex, and this is this is I think very important because this is the turn from where uh, jeans go from being a utilitarian garment to being a fashion garment. Like specifically right here, like there's a lot of other instances where it turns, but like this, I believe is the first one where people are wearing jeans as a status symbol. And this is something that like came up that soon you could buy quote unquote, I've been saying quote unquote a lot this episode. Thank you for bearing with me. Um, But quote unquote cowboy pants, regardless of whether you've been West or not, you know, so you could just buy the Mickey ears without having to actually go to the, uh, to Disneyland the magic kingdom um this was as early as 1905 in the topeka state journal uh in topeka kansas is advertising boys cowboy suits will be 35 cents we had a great sale of these cowboy suits last saturday sold all but a few dozens we shall close them out tomorrow remnant day because the kansas city store informs us that they have had such marvelous selling and these suits, it will be impossible to send us more. These cowboy suits are made of brown denim, same material as the uniforms of the Japanese soldiers are made of. I don't know where that's coming from. <laughs> Sizes 4 to 10, pants have fringe on the side seam, shirts are trimmed with red and fringe down the sleeves. These suits are worth 75 cents. We sold more than 100 of them Saturday at 50 cents. Now, tomorrow, we shall finish the selling the lot per suit, single garment, 25 cents. So I think this is like a closeout ad. Those pants go hard. 
They do, especially this dude's like little face. He looks like a, uh, I don't know, he looks sort of like a sugar skull. A little bit, a little bit. I mean, I think the, the copy's a little heavy, a little heavy-handed. It's like they, you're selling them for 35 cents. We know what's going on. You're having trouble moving these suits. Yeah, but, well, it's the Remnant store, which is, I guess, like the TJ Maxx of uh, 1905 Topeka, Kansas. And it's Remnant Day at the Remnant store. Remnant Day. It's like, uh, it's like Christmas at the holiday store. It looks like he's wearing them backwards. For mm-hmm. those, for those, I know this is an audio medium, but there are two like sort of house shaped pen- pentagonal. Yeah, pentagonal like pockets. Yeah, at the front, and. It, it looks like it could be a fly, but it also could absolutely just be a single seam running. Mm-hmm. So like this kid might've just thrown him on backwards and, and then gotten sketched up, which is fine. He's a kid. Um, but yeah, the fringe, the fringe on the side is pretty intense. So it's like the if needles track pants were like a, a stegosaurus. Mm-hmm. And made of brown stuff. denim, the same kind the Japanese soldiers wear, mind you. And this is 1904, 1905. You know, five. This is like right before the the Sino-Japanese War um, on the other side of the planet that was happening at the time. Do you think um, the guy but, who who wrote this, or the I'm assuming it's a guy, it's 1904, um, just was like, "Yo, screw it, no one's calling me on this." It's the same material the Japanese soldiers are made of, or like, do you yeah, think it's it started- false advertising claims that are happening in 1905? Do you think like he started? He was like, these are with the French uniforms, and they're like, no man, they can verify that. And he's like, what about Japanese? Let's go farther away. Yeah, zoom out, zoom out. Yeah, I'd wear the pants as the bottom line. Like uh, continuing on, of just like a couple more examples of how jeans are being marketed specifically as cowboy pants. Uh, this is from the uh, Carbon. County News, 1926, Helena, Montana. There's a Penny ad here of overalls for the cowboy. Copper riveted of strong blue denim, low-priced, men's sizes, $1.29, youth sizes, $1.19. Oh, this is Penny, where the savings are greatest, and being advertised in uh, Red Lodge, Montana. And then a final one here we've got from the Morgan County Democrat in Ohio in 1935, which advertises from the store just called Whites. <laughs> that's, that's terrifying. A little bit explicit there. Uh, men's and boys overalls, men's hardware brand, 220 white bib back at blue denim, Triple stitched bib front, 98 cents. Men's cowboy pants, white back, blue denim, copper riveted, triple stitched belt loops. I'm saying they say like white back, blue denim is that like the white weft and the blue warp. And that's just the way they're talking about it. Um, But yeah, boys cow puncher, blue denim, copper riveted, triple stitched belt loops, 79 cents. Now, like the way that these pants were marketed like very explicitly at this point is as cowboy clothes when it's not being used as a uh, marketed for its utility. And that is the story of cowboys and how they, I guess were perverted from what they were and then used to sell pants and then were perverted even further to 
you know, bed horny old women that wanted to go to dude ranches. The entire industry, it's it's like it's one of those marketing tricks that I feel like we need to study. Like somehow there was like legitimately, it sounds like a community of like what, like about a thousand folks who went that were actually cowboys. Yeah, who probably informed the next like two generations of of sort mm-hmm. of like uh, you know pop culture and and fashion and and sort of like social ideology. Yeah, and we haven't even gotten to the 50s where, like, Lee explicitly called their uh, jeans cowboy pants. Uh, And how much, like, a lot of early, uh, like, 1950s and 60s TV was about, you know, like, Rawhide and The Rifleman and Bonanza uh, and all of these uh, different shows that really, really, like, hit home the idea of, like, Americans are cowboys, cowboys are American, cowboys wear jeans. But we'll get to that. Um, so just to, to wrap up here, yeah, the, the cowboy is an entirely like fictive and created um, image that resulted from something that was real, like as you were saying, of just like a very small number of people that were had a hyperinflated importance just for what cultural work their image did when it was turned into this thing that could be... Uh, romanticized about and sort of seen as, as as an escape from day-to-day drudgery of factory work on the East Coast. But factory work was about to go all around the country um, pretty soon as we get into next episode where we talk about the effects that the Great Depression and World War II had on expanding denim, not just throughout the United States, but denim goes worldwide, back from whence it came. So thank you for listening in. My name is David. I'm Reed. Uh, we're Heddle's Blowout. And if you like what you heard, um, yeah, maybe give us a little review and uh, tell your denim interested friends or your cowboy interested friends or your pirate interested friends. We really talk about all the uh, the children's hero ideology on this show. Uh, we'll be back next week with more denim history until it's done. Maybe it'll never be done, but we'll just keep going uh, and we'll catch you next week.